Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dennis Wadan, Dr. Saba's producer. For today's episode, the doctor will be in the lecture hall. Recently, Dr. Greenhouse attended the University of Arizona's CEAC short course and got the chance to catch up with a few of the students and speakers about their work in controlled environment agriculture. This week, we're sharing her conversation with Max Smith and Michael Blum in the university's teaching greenhouse. Michael is a second-year biosystems engineering graduate student studying plant lighting and quantum dot films. Max is a first-year graduate student in the Applied Biosciences program doing research for their saltwater greenhouse project. Thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to What Plants Crave. I'm Nadia Saba, your host. I am at the University of Arizona in the Controlled Environment Ag Center. I'm sitting here in the teaching greenhouse. Uh, for those of you who've never been here, it's a sawtooth greenhouse with polycarbonate walls and ceilings, and we have fans that are on. Some are on because it would be a little loud maybe uh, if they were all on, but it's a nice cool day for Tucson. It's only about 65 degrees, but it reminds me being in here why we call the greenhouse effect the greenhouse effect because it does get warm in here without ventilation. Anyway, I am here with two guests, two students here who are master's students. I have Mike Blum and I have Max Smith uh, who are studying uh, plants and greenhouses uh, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and what they're doing. So if you'd like to start, Mike. Hi, my name is Michael Blum um, and I am a second year master's student um, in biosystems engineering here at the University of Arizona and I'm studying plant lighting and quantum dot films. Cool. How about you, Max? Hi, my name is uh, Max Smith. Uh, I'm a first-year graduate student in the uh, Applied Biosciences Master's Program. Uh, right now, I'm in a research greenhouse, um, uh, part of the Saltwater Greenhouse Project. We're using uh, plant empowerment, basically, to help plants grow at a, at a much elevated temperature and elevated humidity. Oh, interesting. So how did you guys both get interested in control environment ag in the first place, and how did you find the center? I, my story is kind of an uh, unusual one, I would say. Um, I was down in Mexico and we started, a, we started an international school um, down there from nothing. And, but we were, we, we were every day after school fundraising and trying to bring in money to build a school building and campus and all of these things. And one day we got funding for putting a aquaponics facility on our campus and we got a donation for that and you always say you know I didn't know what aquaponics was at the time but I'm like yeah let's let's do that and we built a pretty decent size um, aquaponics facility on our school campus and we integrated it I was responsible for integrating it into our curriculum and we integrated it into our biology our chemistry and our business classes and wow. our students operated it and that's what first got me into controlled environment agriculture and from there I tried to learn everything I could about controlled environment agriculture because I didn't know what I was really doing so um, I looked about getting a master's um, and I looked at all of the schools in in the US and when I was coming back here it was like 15 years later um, I came back and applied and I here I am have you taken any of the lessons you've learned so far back to that school that you helped start and bring that aquaponics system to? 
yeah, so that was that was 10 years ago now that I was there. So that was a while ago, but I was learning from places like the SEAC when I was down there and we were trying to make it all work because we didn't really know what we were doing. And <laughs> we were learning at the same time as the students. Very cool, very hands-on, it yeah. sounds like. And what about you, Max? How did you find Controlled Environment Ag? So uh, I was actually, uh, I was a bachelor's student at the University of Arizona, but I was actually studying uh, human physiology. Backstreet, like with my parents and everything, we were always like very interested in garden, had a home garden. Um, uh, my father was military, so we, uh, we were stationed overseas for a while and we lived in a small farm town in Germany. Hmm. And from there, uh, that was basically where we first got our like full sense of like large scale agriculture. Um, uh, the, the main farmer there, his name was Alfred, and he, uh, he, he grew all of his uh, maize crops and he used that to then feed his um, uh, pigs and his cows for slaughter or for his uh, cows for dairy. So, I mean, our first times we were, we didn't speak a lick of German, but we're sitting on the, on the feeders, just sitting back, spraying all, all the honey pot uh, that they, they cleaned out all their house with. It was basically just, oh, yeah, no. raw human seaweed. So <laughs> no. this was produce not for, for uh, human consumption, that's for sure. But it did okay for the pigs and cows. Wow. But, um, so as I started my journey, uh, my dad was also medical, so I saw, figured I'd just like follow in the family footsteps and go something in medicine. But basically three, four years in, I figured like I, I was not enjoying it. It was not for me, did not really enjoy patient care. Mm. I had some opportunities where I was able to intern at the sports medicine facility. It was just like trying to switch it up a bit, but still it was just not my calling. So uh, it was too late at that point to like switch anything. So I went ahead and finished like my bachelor's degree. After getting out of school, I actually found myself working and managing uh, one of the local medicinal marijuana dispensaries here okay. in town. And from there, that's where I started getting my first looks into like like indoor green uh, controlled environment systems and actually basically controlling environments and make a, a lot of produce for profit. And from that experience, I actually saw how you could do things wrong, which I think which was more uh, a more enticing experience because I saw all this money being put into all the, the light systems, the, the amount of labor that was being put into it, and by the end of it, they're still putting out a subpar product. Mm. And that kind of got me into like, well, well I mean, I want to be able to help this. I want to be able to do this. So I, I then made the decision to go back to school and actually doing that, I, I left the dispensary. Currently now I'm working at a craft beer bar in town and I can also see just the amount of need and the amount of demand for high quality produce year round. Because, uh, I mean, hops, which are a big part of beer, they're only harvested freshly at a certain time of the year. But, I mean, one thing that we could do from there is just, like, especially using greenhouse, you could have it hop season all year round. So just kind of some interest in that led me to kind of the, the SEAC. I found my program, honestly, just doing Google searches to see what was offered. I wanted to see what it took to be a grower and like some people have followed the footsteps of how they did it and I found this program. Luckily for me, it was a mile down the road from my house. I was gonna house. say, how lucky. <laughs> yeah, it was perfect, it was great. And so from there, I, I decided to take a couple classes, one of which was actually with uh, Dr. Giacomelli. And from there, I, uh, I asked him if he had any positions available and now I find myself working underneath him as a researcher, so. Wow, so you went from human and animal physiology to plant physiology and, and I, I guess, engineering a facility or, or empowering plants yep. to be their best. Yep. And not just through a whole bunch of money and technology without really having a rhyme or reason to it, it sounds like. Exactly. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about the research you've done, Mike. What exactly are you studying? 
Yeah, okay, so I'm I'm working on a NASA-funded project using quantum dot films to change the color of light that the plants are receiving. Um, okay, what is a quantum dot film? Yeah, so a quantum dot is basically a special molecule that has a fluorescence effect. It absorbs at a higher wavelength and emits at a lower wavelength, so absorbing blue light and emitting red light. Hmm. That's a quantum dot, and the quantum dot film, so if you, if you embed a bunch of those quantum dots into a plastic film, you can keep them stable for a long time. And that's always been the trick with these kind of um, colored films or this kind of technology, is that they work, but they work for a really short time. They degrade quickly, but the ones that we're working with, they, they don't degrade. Um, very quickly, they convert the the blue and the ultraviolet light into red or orange light. So something actually usable by plants. Yeah, and the red and orange light is the most photosynthetically efficient light for the plants too. So it's okay. it increases their photosynthetic efficiency. And we've been we studied that on red romaine lettuce, um, and across the board we we tried six different quantum dot films. So absorbs and emits at slightly different wavelengths of light. Slightly more red, slightly more orange. And we saw improvements across the board on, on our on lettuce. On all of those films? On all of the films. They were all 10 to 20% better. Compared to? Compared to a normal polyethylene film. Um, really? In our red romaine lettuce trials, yeah. So 10 to 20% improvement. Does that film cost 10 to 20% more? No, um, it doesn't, and it's competitive with polyethylene film. Really? It's used, quite, it's used not exactly in the same way. Um, the polyethylene film would be your traditional covering for your greenhouse. And these films currently are inserted underneath your, your film, um, inside your greenhouse. So it would be another under, layer another of Another layer of film. And I know they're working on incorporating these into in, into the glazing greenhouse, into the films, so you don't have that second layer, but currently we have that second layer um, with these films. Well, because you mentioned degradation, so it seems to me like one of the benefits would be to use that as your primary co cover. Yeah, yeah. And Is there also an energy efficiency benefit to using these films? If you're not letting in higher wavelengths of light, maybe you don't need as much cooling or something? There is that. It, it is a, it, it does shade. Um, it, it, blocks 10, about like 10% of the light passes, passing through it. So if you were in a hmm. really low light situation, these might not be the best choice. But for example, here in Tucson, we have to shade our greenhouses anyway. Um, so, so it shades, it takes about 20, about 10% of the light, but it shifts the light into the red and orange where it's more photosynthetically efficient. And it also makes the light more diffuse at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it can be thought of as kind of, an, at this moment, like an alternative to supplemental lighting. Really? It's the supplemental lighting will extend, will extend your, your growing time, right? And, and give you more, sure. more for the light that you have, um, but at the cost of energy, uh, energy input. And so these, you won't get extra light, but you don't have to put any energy into these. Hmm. So they're, it also sounds like it sort of breaks that rule of thumb that, you know, 1% more light means 1% more yield, but you just said the opposite. 
that 10% less light is 10% more yield. Yeah, it's, and it's not so much that, so less light on its own is worse, but if the light that they're getting is light that they can use mm -hmm. and use efficiently as opposed to ultraviolet, which they don't really even use, and the blue, which they use, but not as efficiently, you can you can make up for diminishment yeah. in incoming light. Interesting. With the color of light that you're giving them. So, last question along this yeah. line of, of conversation, why is NASA interested in these films? So NASA, even though, even though these films can, um, could help farmers here. NASA is interested in these for specific applications to space. And in space, you have to have very efficient systems that can make the most of the light that you have. If you're on Mars or if you're on the moon, you have to make the most of the light you have. So that, efficiency, that improved efficiency is really valuable to them. But also, it's, it's, not, it's much more lightweight than um, some kind of supplemental lighting system. And it's and it's less energy intensive, obviously, which is are both important things for space and for NASA. The other thing I would say is that space, because um, there's no atmosphere like there is here, is a much higher UV environment mm. than it is here, and so these films that can absorb UV light and emit light in the far spectrum that the plants can use, that has um, an extra benefit to space applications because of you have all this extra UV light which isn't helping your plants grow. So so would those plants then be exposed directly to the, the incoming sunlight? Or I'm just thinking about being at the Mars Lunar Greenhouse and how we're using electrical supplemental lighting for those modules. Would this be a case where we would actually be exposed to direct sunlight? Or, or could we also see benefits of using that electric lighting with these films, do you think? Yeah, so you could see both, potentially. This would allow you to use the light, the natural light that you're getting more, more efficiently, mm -hmm. which can help with that. There, part of this project is also developing a, the technology to put these quantum dots into fiber optic cables. Um, oh, wow. So you might have a solar collectors on the moon or Mars, which are collecting the natural light that's hitting them and sending them through fiber optic cables and using these quantum dots embedded in those cables to get you more efficient use of the, oh, light, wow. that's the light that you're collecting. So oh, that's, that's also super interesting. part of this project. So Very cool. In, in terms of using them underneath electrical lights, you probably wouldn't do that. It okay. doesn't make sense unless you had lights that were giving out much higher UV and blue than than was necessary. Which generally were sort if you of had avoiding, LED, right? If, if, if you had some kind of targeted LEDs, you just would would not have the that extra light. Right. Very cool. So Max, tell me about the research you're doing. So right now I'm what's involved with a project called the Saltwater Greenhouse Project with the uh, in tandem with the University of California Merced. And so our side of the uh, research is we're, we're testing um, elevated temperatures with uh, elevated relative humidity to control the vapor pressure deficit. Okay. And we're doing that to show that we can still have successful plant growth with yields that are the same as control variables that like just normal greenhouse conditions where we're running all the environmental control systems. And 
we're just making sure that we can uh, have a, a quality product being grown under these conditions with uh, elevated temperatures and elevated relative humidity. Okay, so give me an example because I'm just thinking, okay, we want to target, let's just say a VPD of one kilopascal. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's 80 degrees and 70% relative humidity would be like our ideal conditions, right, mm -hmm. to grow tomatoes to hit that VPD. So when you say elevated temperature and elevated humidity, what does that mean exactly? So right now we're uh, we're heating during the daytime uh, here in Arizona. What? Yes, we are. It, no, it's warm, but we need. Do you to need have it to? Uh, for <laughs> what the process they need to do um, for their desalination processes, yes. It's what do you mean? So um, on their side, they're trying to um, remediate their salty water that comes off of their field um, fertigation systems. So they're basically trying. So we're to integrating this with field agriculture. Yes. Oh wow! And that is more their side of the project. We're just demonstrating that we can actually have successful plant growth at those temperatures and at those relative humidities. What are those temperatures? I'm scared. Right now, we're we can get up to about 86 during the daytime, and our humidity can get upwards of 80 percent. This is roughly about between 75 to 80 percent. Okay. Times. We're supplementing that with uh, misters at the back of our greenhouse, and they're depending on like during the day, they're just constantly running. Where would that humidity come from? I mean, if so, okay, so so you're simulating this high temperature, high humidity, and and really targeting a vapor pressure deficit, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, and so in the desalination process, where's the heat coming from? Is the heat and the humidity coming from the same process? Um, I think not. Um, their desalinator is, I think, something that's proprietary, and we're not really disclosing at this time because it's going to basically be their own proprietary information. Sure, sure. But from what we understand, it needs to be ran at these elevated temperatures and at these elevated relative humidities to work more the most efficiently. So... What do you... The, for the desalination process yes, to work the yes, most? Okay. Exactly. So I, I'm not quite sure what the process is. If it's going for something by like evaporation, if it just needs to have more of that, or basically what the ins and outs are there, but that's more so like what they're testing and like their own kind of sneaky secret sauce that they're developing. So our listeners are screaming like, what? Like high temperature? Isn't that like the whole point of being in controlled environment ag to like manage the temperature and humidity to like exactly what the plants want? I mean, explain. Mm -hmm. I, are they doing well under these elevated they conditions? They actually are. They are doing very well. We're actually having successful growth. We're having uh, yields that are basically on par with like normal controlled environment systems. We're having the same amount of growth. We're averaging, uh, so in our greenhouse, we have cucumbers, two varieties of tomatoes, and we're also growing melons. And then we'll soon be starting a uh, lettuce and deep water culture. Um, cucumbers, we were averaging, I think probably like 50, 60 pounds a week of just raw cucumbers. And that's between, I think 18 plants. So they're just pumping out cucumbers. Uh, wow. On tomatoes, we were getting on average about a foot of apical growth a week as well. Um, harvests have been on par with uh, recent or past control studies that we've been doing with it. So everything's been going great. It's been actually a fantastic environment, but part of what we're doing is that we're using some, we're using the idea of plant empowerment to help control the environment. And so what we're doing for that is to calculate our vapor pressure deficit. Instead of using the normal ambient temperatures, we actually have an IR probe on leaves at all time, and that'll then relay data to make sure we're getting a correct vapor pressure deficit that's best and most suitable for the plant. So I think we're shooting around like 1.3, 1.5 uh, kilopascals, and that's been 
And that's based on leaf temperature yes. as opposed to air temperature. Exactly, yeah. How, how do they compare? I mean, it, at, at 86 degrees, is the leaf temperature higher or lower than the air temperature? Well, the leaf temperature is always going to be lower because as it is transpiring, it's, it's, it's um, releasing that water vapor. Mm -hmm. It's basically like perspiring as we do. As we're sweating, the sweat evaporates, our, our body temperature gets lower. Same thing that's going on with the plant. So on, on natural, the plant is going to be relatively cooler then it's going to be actually the ambient temperature. So if you have a higher ambient temperature, you're most likely going to be putting more water into the air than you need to, and that's not going to be doing the best for your uh, transpiration of your actual plant. They're, the stomatas are not going to open and close properly, and they may not transpire as much as they need to because there's more water vapor actually in the air. I mean, that was kind of going to be my next question is, do you have to modify any of the other input variables like irrigation and nutrients to make up for this higher temperature and humidity, or because we're still controlling to a vapor pressure deficit, it's still about the same. Exactly, so since <laughs> we're controlling the vapor pressure deficit to a, a, an all right amount, where it's in that like basically the green zone, where we don't really need to change anything with irrigation or things of that nature, because we're, we're kind of staying in that in that sweet spot for hmm. the vapor pressure deficit. Now, I was always taught that tomatoes like an average daily temperature of around 22 degrees Celsius. I'm just gonna pick a number. Do you have to lower the temperature at night to maintain that daily average temperature or can we shift the whole average daily temperature up by having these higher temperatures and humidity? Is it really VPD? Yeah, so what we're doing is it's more so um, the plant can't handle the heat at nighttime, so we're only using the heat trials during the day. If we had this heat going at night, we're not irrigating at night. Okay. So it's, it just won't have the amount of water to be able to actually transpire as it needed to. But on, on days where it's cloudy, it doesn't work that well because we can't have all this, this heat and we can't have all this moisture in the air without the sun to actually help kickstart a lot of these like biological processes. So it, it, so you're not shading then? We're not shading. We actually have a, uh, the only glass screened, uh, glass glazed greenhouse. So we're allowing basically everything. In. Wow. So you're really optimizing for light. PPFD for temperature, which is really about vapor pressure deficit and I guess whatever the CO2 is, I mean, it's still, yeah, you're not altering that. I'm yeah, assuming. we're not supplementing CO2. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. So tell me something you've learned. Something you guys have learned about growing plants in general. I know, Mike, you mentioned aquaponics and you were learning from the ground up. You started with animals or humans, I guess, and, and worked on this farm. What has surprised you both about growing plants in general and in a controlled environment? It's complicated. I would okay. say, I would say it's, it's fair. I would say it's complicated <laughs> and complex. Whether it's easy or hard depends on your, your, <laughs> your definition. Level. Oh, hard, yeah, or that. It's hard when you're starting, for sure, to understand all of the different complex variables. And I think even as you learn more and more, it's still still complex. It's still a lot of things are happening and you're trying to control all the, the factors and there's there's things that are outside of what you're trying to control for mm. and that are affecting you. Um, just... The irrigation system, the fertigations, I think that's what that is, right? Yeah, the fertigation system okay. just kicked on and sitting right behind us. Mm -hmm. We're in a living, breathing greenhouse growing all these tomatoes and peppers and eggplants. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. The yeah. joy of working in a greenhouse. One of the many sounds we get. Yeah. Yes, I love it. It's good background. Are, 
I was saying, like, even kind of building off what Michael was saying, it, it is a very steep learning curve. Mm. So, so me coming from just learning about how the body controls itself, you're, you're basically now, like, you're controlling how the greenhouse is breathing. You're controlling its own temperature. You're controlling the nutrients that you're putting into it, too. So it's a lot of just deeper understanding that you can have more with plant science, I would say. Because, I mean, anyone can just, like, get some seeds planted in the ground, water, and hope for the best. But to do it well, to do it on a, a level where you're going to get like adequate yield in, in a very like in a most efficient way that's where the learning curve kind of comes in where you have to do a little bit more background a little bit more research you have to employ all these hundreds of thousand multi-million dollar systems but it's for the purpose of trying to kind of make a lot of field agriculture obsolete in a ways because mm. a lot of times where like, even like leafy greens were grown in a field we can do sometimes per square meter twice the amount, 200% basically what we've been seeing from fields inside of a greenhouse with less water usage, with less uh, fertilizer, with other things like that. It's just, but you have to know how to do it correctly, that's for sure. Like you can't just go into a willy-nilly and just expecting you're gonna, gonna blow everything out of the water then like some of these people have been doing it for hundreds of years on their family farms. It's, right, it's right. definitely something you gotta control. Environment. We don't have as much as much historical knowledge in how to grow plants yes. using hydroponics and controlled environment ag as we do the 10,000 years mm -hmm. of farming um, that make us human. One thing I would add is is that something that surprised me, I guess, is thinking about the plant in our in our controlled environments. These are these are not the environments that they evolved to be to thrive in. We're we're altering that. We're changing that. In the natural world, they will they will see stresses and they will see different different events, different weather conditions that 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 they're not seeing in our greenhouses. And they're evolved for a different environment than we're giving them. That's why paying attention to the plants is so important. I think because it's not just about okay, look what temperature do they need, look that up, put that in there. It's paying attention to how they're responding to this environment as opposed to their natural environment um, and thinking of those differences between our controlled environment and the world in which they evolved is, I think, really important and that's really changed how I look at growing plants. Hmm. And you have to speak their language, kind of. Ah, yes. It's not all about us, is it? <laughs> it's about them, I think. So, I mean, just based on that line of thought, do you think there's actually advantages that plants have by being exposed to a variable environment? Like, even if you just think about your colleagues uh, who are in the vertical farm research facility, do you think that they have more advantages by constantly creating a uniform environment that's consistent all the time for plants? Or do you think that maybe you have an advantage being in a greenhouse with more variable environment yeah and and being outside is has its own advantages for sure. for their level level of variability i know that in the world of tea plantations the flavor of the tea depends on the various stressors that mm -hmm. that, that plant that that tree has lived through and that releases different enzymes and different chemicals for their defense to, to those stresses and yeah if, if you're ever taking stresses away, that's gonna affect how they grow. You'll have some advantages. You might be taking away some other advantages as, as well at the same time. Yeah, that's a great point. Even just thinking about Dr. Roberto Lopez's talk earlier about lighting, he was saying how 
for growing basil up to from 200 to 600 uh, PPFD that yes they grew faster at a higher light intensity and they also expressed more of these flavonoids and terpenoids but at, which seems great on the surface that it increased but actually consumers like the flavor of basil down at 200 micromoles so why are we pushing it to 600 if that's not what consumers want anyway True. Yeah. I don't know I think a lot of it's even like looking like we're forcing plant growth because uh, as we use a lot of CO2 supplementation in, mm. in a lot of our greenhouses in, even large-scale grows, it's, it is growing a larger plant, you're getting more yield. But there's been like research showing that actually when you supplement too much CO2 or if you do it for too long in a plant, actually the, the nutritional aspects of that, the fruit, will actually be decreased. So it, it's, it's your give and take. Are you looking for a more quantity of fruit or are you looking for a better quality of fruit? So you, you definitely do coddle the plant in certain ways. Like we, we we control the environment, we make it so it's the best thing for the plant, but it is some of those stressors that, like like Michael was saying, it gives the, the better flavor for the plants, it gives it more nutritional value, it makes it a lot hardier of a plant. Mm-hmm. It goes through these stressors and from there it actually, if it goes through water stress um, early on in life and then you get it back to normal water, it actually has a better um, ability to uptake water because it has better aquaporins in its root. It just different things like that. like. Developmentally, the stressors can be very helpful to a plant. It's interesting how. Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just gonna. I was just gonna add on to that. That so, controlling the environment is is an advantage uh, as long as you know what to control for. But ah. so, so like if, <laughs> it, it might be that you need to introduce certain stressors, mm-hmm. but that's 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 where it gets complicated as to what should you be controlling for. Mm-hmm. And when do you introduce those stressors? You don't necessarily need to introduce it all the time. I mean, going back to Dr. Lopez's talk, he talked about adding uh, blue light and that, you know, you don't have to do it throughout the two or three week life cycle of the lettuce plant. You can just do it in the last week or the last few days and it'll express those red and blue colors that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what do you guys want to do? I mean, after you're done with this program, you guys want to stick around and do a PhD? Do you guys want to go out and build greenhouses or run a greenhouse? What do you guys want to do? Uh, I, I guess it seems what I'm most limited to. Um, I, I definitely do want to get out into the industry and start gaining some experience, like hands-on, uh, more so than I'm already getting at the university level. But I, I guess, I mean, Ideally, I'd, I'd like to be in some sort of situation where I can apply my knowledge. I, I definitely don't want to like jump into sales. I don't want to sell greenhouses to people. I don't want to like sell a lot of basically the products that go into greenhouses. I want to be one of the ones on the front lines actually learning how to help improve them or like the practices that you use for the greenhouses or just something that you can use to uh, increase the efficiency without while minimizing the amount of resources that you're actually using. Yeah. So. That's, that's kind of where I would like to jump into it, just making them more efficient than they already are, but where that is and who that's with, I'm not quite sure yet. Very cool. And I would say that, um, I would say that, that, I'm, that I'm still keeping my options open. I'm really interested in the space applications of my project yeah. and working on further NASA studies or the applications of these kind of things in space is very interesting to me and also in extreme environments here here on Earth, because space is just a very st- extreme environment. Um, but we also have extreme environments here on Earth mm-hmm. where we can't really grow things. Um, and so those technologies kind of, it's, it's just about learning how you can 
control create an environment for the plants that will allow you to grow things in in a place that you otherwise wouldn't that's where i'm really interested in i i am considering um pursuing a phd i'm also considering going out and um trying to build a company or build a project that looks towards these kind of um, goals awesome i mean i think about tucson and arizona and i mean it's it's dry here it's hot here and i mean the rest of the world that you know i'm actually i'm in california and we're dealing with drought all the time i mean we're just in this mega drought that's never going to end and you know we're going to be hurting i mean i just feel like this arizona climate is just going to uh, migrate north and what you guys are doing here is going to help us in in more northern latitudes i'm not even that northern of a latitude um but you're helping us prepare for a future that feels inevitable right now. I think this field is going to be in the spotlight here fairly soon, just for main agricultural practices. As as global warming is increasing and as desertification is ex making a lot more land that was once very fertile and mm -hmm. very rich with like actual plant species is now just turning into dry desert. But I mean, here in Arizona, we're like in the middle of this desert, and we have these lush greenhouses still able to produce pounds and pounds of produce per week. So. I think there's, there's going to be a demographic shift from these like larger scale, larger manlass, land mass, excuse my dyslexia, <laughs> uh, um, growing projects, and it's going to be more focused towards the, the greenhouse side. So I think we're, we're kind of more on the forefront of it, especially if not here, and then like wherever we choose to travel, whether it be like space or, I mean, hopefully avoiding another like dust bowl situation, then we can. Yeah man that we can't grow anything outside of it at least we have our indoor spaces that we can control so i think I, that's why i'm uh, happy for this field and i found a good spot because i feel like we're part of the future yeah it's, it's on the forefront of a lot of this new cutting edge technology that is going to be very very important i think in the next 10 15 50 years yeah yeah i say this so this planet we live on is kind of like a greenhouse it's just that the controls are, are a lot more complicated and a lot larger scale and we have to figure out, we have to make it work. Um, so learning about how to control plants and the effects of controlled environments on plants gonna, is gonna have something to say on the plants that are on Earth that are having their environments change, so. Yeah, awesome. Well, you guys, thank you so much for your time today. It was really fun getting to know you and learning about your research. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. That was Dr. Nadia Saba speaking with Michael Blum and Max Smith in the CEAC Teaching Greenhouse at the University of Arizona. Subscribe and listen every week for new interviews with growers and researchers in controlled environment agriculture. Thanks for listening.